you've probably seen this picture before um, of uh, like two sets of footprints in the sand. You've seen that? And then it says like, you know, Jesus picks you up halfway through. I just think that's theologically inaccurate because Jesus has been carrying our butt the whole time. Like, like we were never really walking on our own, okay? So, so when you become a Christian, you finally realize he was carrying you. And the way that Jesus carries us oftentimes is through one another. We just got done with that series several weeks ago, um, greater than the sum of its parts. Those aren't just series that we look back. We want that to be part of the DNA of our church. And we really do need each other. We really do need each other. Martin Luther said that a Christian shoulder should be broad and husky to carry the burdens of one another. And so I'm grateful um, for Carmen leading us in that way. So when people ask how you're doing, if you're really not doing well, don't say you're doing well, right? You know, we often get really skilled as Christians to give the plastic smiles and the plastic answers. But the church, the place where we gather, not the building, but the church, we should be a people that are transparent and vulnerable. And vulnerability exudes weakness. But in our weakness, who is strong? He is. So it's actually really theologically glorifying to God when you acknowledge that you don't have everything together. Now, some of you do, and that's great. Please come talk to me. I'd like to follow you. And, and, um, but, but, we, but we all are really a hot mess. And I'm just coming to the realization more and more after 17 years of marriage. My wife knew it April 5th, 2003, that I was a hot mess, but I'm just now realizing it more and more. And so I'm, I'm grateful that um, to be authentic is to actually show that I don't have everything together. And I hope that you don't think that about me as we are in our fifth week of Share Hope series. And in the first service, I called it Sin Hope the whole time. So Larry's probably watching from Ukraine right now. Larry's good to see your face. And uh, I do realize that the series is called Share Hope, even though I did not call it that the whole service. So anyway, Share Hope, not Sin Hope. And you might be thinking another sermon on evangelism. Man, I wish I was on vacation. Man, I wish I had, you know, providentially be, been, was sick this morning because I don't want to hear about a discipline that I, frankly, um, maybe you're not very skilled at or maybe you haven't been very faithful in. I heard a good word this past week. I was in Atlanta for several days this past week, and a good friend of mine said this, no one is discouraged towards faithfulness. Think about that. No one is discouraged towards faithfulness. So parents, teachers, bosses, grandparents, when, when we scold or have disparaging comments to people, why would you do that? Does that, does that move you to faithfulness? Like it, it embitters you, right? It, it, it might be momentarily, you might experience shame and guilt. It might for a moment temporarily move you, but it's not lasting. It's not enduring. No one is discouraged towards faithfulness. So our aim in this series called Share Hope is not to discourage you, but to help you realize the glorious Savior and King who lived the life that we were called to live and did not live, was crucified on a cross, stepped into our place, taking our shame and guilt and punishment, was buried in a borrowed tomb because he only needed it three days, rose again, triumphantly defeating sin because he never sinned, not even once defeating death because death does not hold the last word for a believer. He rose again, he ascended, and he's coming back again. And we have a hope. We have a hope that is eternity altering. And the more that we see Jesus clearly, 
The more that we see Jesus clearly and what he has done for us and we see our sin clearly, we'll be compelled to share hope. And so it's not meant to be discouraging. We are five weeks into this series, Share Hope, and we are in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. So if you have your phone, you can turn there, copy of God's Word. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. If you are physically able to, if you'll stand with me, we're just going to read verses 25 through 28. This is God's voice, God's Word to you and to me, and may God bless the preaching and the hearing of it. So here is what God says to us. Verse 25. And I'm reading out of the ESV, just in case it might be a little different. And behold, a lawyer or a scholar or a theologian stood up to Jesus to test him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we sit and listen to your word this morning, may you give us seeing eyes, hearing ears, a receptive heart to believe and do the truth that is found in the Bible. Spirit, we need your help as we talk about sharing hope with our neighbor. Would you give us spiritual self-awareness? Would you give us encouragement and comfort where we have failed, where we have been discouraged, where we have been disobedient? Would you preach to our heart, Spirit, that there is grace and mercy anew every day? And may we be more and more a church that seeks to share hope with those around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. A lawyer stood up to ask, what must I do? And just in case you might initially say, well, you don't have to do anything to gain eternal life. You have to do something. You have to repent and believe. But that was not the motive of this guy's question. This guy is a Bible scholar. He is a theologian. He's the guy that you would go to if you had any questions. He's teaching the Bible studies. He is pontificating about the truths and the mysteries of the Bible. And he can teach it in simplistic manner. So he asked, excuse me, ask a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Basically, what does the Bible say? What does the Old Testament say? And how do you understand it? How do you interpret it? By referring back to the Bible, Jesus is reorienting the agenda to his, not to the lawyers. Jesus does this all the time in conversation. The lawyer responds in verse 27 and quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. His answer comes right from Scripture, and Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The phrase, do this and you will live, is in the present tense, meaning continually, incessantly, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With the totality of your life, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You are to love them with the same interest and concern that we have for ourselves. But who has ever loved in such a wholehearted and supremely selfless way? And here's what he should have done. He should have gotten on his knees and said, who in the world can love God? Every 
moment of their day, with every ounce of their being, who can love God with the totality of their life, every moment of their life, and love their neighbor as their selves. But he doesn't do that. He wished to justify himself, the Bible tells us. And so he's trying to save face, and he asks a question to show off his spiritual, intellectual superiority. And Jesus responds with an answer that is not intended to make him look stupid, but makes him look foolish because all his seminary buddies are off to his right and his left because Jesus gives an answer that he knew from the very early days of his rabbinical training, his theological training that he got in the synagogue. He knew the answer. Yes, yes, of course, I know that we all need to love our neighbors, but exactly who is our neighbor? How do you define that? And one commentator paraphrased the lawyer's response to Jesus in this way. How can I spot other individuals who belong to God's people so that I can love them? Jesus, I don't want to love everybody. I don't want to love him and I don't want to love her, but I don't mind loving these people. And how can I spot those people and love them? He asked in verse 29, who is my neighbor? And when the Jews spoke of their Neighbors, they spoke almost exclusively of fellow Jews. The Gentiles did the same thing. Members of their community, ethnocentrism abounded. Ethnocentrism is a term that speaks to people who are committed and love people that are like-minded in their ethnicity. I want to love this particular person with this particular culture, with this particular language, with this particular social moral. I want to love them, and I don't want to love these other people. We do this. We draw lines, spoken lines, unspoken lines at times to keep people out from different backgrounds. We often do a great job of caring for the people that we like, that resonate with us, but we have a lot less concern for the people that are outside our social circles. We do this in the church. We draw social lines, making distinctions between those that are wealthy or not wealthy, those who have different political affiliations. And so we want to love our neighbors, but we want to define our neighbors. Jesus is trying to expose this man's hypocrisy in that he only loved a particular group of people. But isn't it true that not only do we do that, we love these people well, and it's not as if we don't hate these people. We just don't have as much concern. They're, we're not as mindful for them. But the question remains, do we actually even literally know our neighbors? Do we literally know our neighbors? There's a, a great book that I read years ago called The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. And I want to give you a little self-assessment. You don't have to report this. You don't have to write it down. But there's three questions that are on the screen. Self-assessment from the book, The Art of Neighboring. Here's the three questions that they give in their book. Think about your eight closest neighbors. Your eight closest neighbors. Do you know their name? First name, last name. All right, got it? A little self-assessment. Now, I know that I said in the very beginning, no one is discouraged towards faithfulness, and this might be a little discouraging. But I want to encourage you to think about those that live around you. Do you know the names of your neighbors? First and last name. Second question I ask is a detail of their life. Just, just from casual observation and casual conversation, you know some details about this person's life. Nathan and Lauren Milliken, they live at this particular address and they drive a white Suburban. Got it. Check. You're done. You know their name 
and you know a detail. The third question is a personal detail that you would not know unless you have delved into some type of significant conversation. So you got your eight closest neighbors, you know their names, you have a general detail that anybody could glean just from casual conversation or casual observation, and then a detail of their life that you would not otherwise know if you did not delve into their life over the period of days, weeks, months, or years. As they ask this question to thousands and thousands of people, but not just any people, believers, people who said, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I know that the law and the prophets, I know that the Old Testament can be summed up into this, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I do think Jesus intended that when he said to love your neighbor, I do think he had in mind, yes, as I'm going to say, it's, it's much more broad than your actual physical neighbor, but I do think Jesus actually meant your physical neighbor as well. So of all the thousands of people that they interviewed, what percentage of people do you think could answer those three questions satisfactorily? And you're like, does he want us to like say this out loud? Less than 1%. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians whom God has sovereignly and providentially placed where they live. It's not just where you rest your head on your pillow at night, that God, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 17, that he has sovereignly placed you where you live so that you might be an aroma, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, an aroma, a fragrance, an ambassador, a representative to Jesus. Less than 1% of Christians could actually answer each question about their closest neighbors. Jesus is wanting to convey to this lawyer and he's wanting to convey to you and to me that we're to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That we're to share hope with our enemies. We're to share hope without distinction. We're to share hope with our neighbors. Now, if the lawyer had truly understood Jesus, then Jesus might have been a little bit more direct with him, but he shares a parable story. A parable is an earthly story, as you probably know, with the heavenly meaning typically about salvation. So Jesus is conveying this story, and he's wanting to communicate to the lawyer, this scholar, this theologian par excellence, this guy who knows all the answers to all the questions that you have. He wants to convey to him something about what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus. And at the center of the story, he puts a Samaritan, the good Samaritan. It, is all, it almost has become trite when we say, oh, they're just being a good Samaritan. The context of this story would have been offensive to Jesus' audience, which was primarily Jewish. It would have been offensive they would have been angry, mad at Jesus. And here are the details of this parable. There's a dying man on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho that several people encounter. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a long, winding descent, and it passed through a lot of dangerous territory. Thieves and murderers would post up camp there and would... Um, steal and rob and beat and murder individuals. In fact, in Jesus' day, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, this particular place geographically that Jesus described was called the bloody way because people were continually beaten 
and robbed and left for dead. And many people did die. And this was the case with this individual in this story. And several people had a chance to save this person's life. You have a priest, you have a Levite, and you have a Samaritan. And you have the priest. That would be kind of like our lead pastor, Larry Riley. Okay, so he's um, not here. And um, someone told me the other day, hey, I I think you are acquiring a reputation to constantly make fun of the other staff. I know my time is coming when they get up here as well. So the priest would be like our our modern day, the lead pastor. And priests were from the descendant of Aaron, and they would help with sacrifices and maintenance of the temple. And so you have this priest, and if anybody's going to help this guy on the side of the road that's been beaten and bloodied and left for dead, it's the priest. But the Bible says that the priest sees this guy, and instead of going to help him or her, goes the other way, goes to the other side. That's the shortest route to where I need to go. I want to go that way, but I'm going to go the other way because I, I, don't, I don't want to help this person who's bloodied, beaten, and left for dead. He just came from Jerusalem, so he's ceremonially clean. He probably was there to worship. And so the Bible tells me I can't hang out and touch people who are bloodied and beaten. So, so just because I'm committed to the ceremonial aspect of the law, I'm going to go the other way. Frankly, he probably just didn't want to bother with that person. And then you've got a Levite. These are the number twos. These are the Carmens and the Ryans, and the Nathans. And these people are even more godly and spiritual than the lead pastor. And so they see, they see this person bloodied and beaten and left for dead. And if anybody's going to go help them, I know it wasn't the priest, but it's got to be the Levite. And instead, they see the person, and they, the Bible says they go to the other side. And then Jesus incorporates a detail that would have been offensive They would have been angry that Jesus put a Samaritan as the hero of the story. Now, you probably know a little bit about Samaritans. Let me give you a little bit of history, some context. The term Samaritan is identified with the northern kingdom. You had the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and the Assyrians go in and they conquer Israel and they exile the Israelites and they remain in this land. And then the Assyrians, who were the most powerful group of people at that particular time, conquered many other people. And those people that they conquered were captivity, were in captivity. And they go and they settle in the land with the exiled Israelites. So you've got Israelites and you've got all these other people. The Israelites worship the one true God. And you've got all these other groups of people that worship all sorts of gods. They're polytheistic. And the Bible constantly said, hey, be mindful, be aware of all these people that have foreign gods because they're going to lure and attract you away and pull you away from the one true God. So you have Israelites and all these other people, and eventually they intermarry. They're called Samaritans. Even though later they were given a chance to leave that land, many of them stayed. By the time the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple because it had been destroyed, Ezra and Nehemiah, godly men, refused to let the Samaritans share in the experience because they were disloyal and they had turned their back and they had intermarried and they had, they had abandoned the one true God. And in the days of Jesus, the animosity was still great. The Jews had great disdain for Samaritans. In fact, they called Jesus a Samaritan. It was not a term of endearment. 
They would go the extra distance through the barren land of Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan just to avoid going through Samaria. And Jesus had a lot to say about Samaritans. He healed a Samaritan leper. He honored a Samaritan publicly. He praised a Samaritan for his gratitude. He asked for a drink from a Samaritan woman who was a loose woman. And he says, go get your husband. She says, I'm not married. That's right, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband now. And in, a very, in, some, in one of the few instances in the Bible, he actually discloses his identity to this Samaritan, this woman who is hated, and this woman who was ostracized by community. And Jesus was attentive and he loved this Samaritan woman. He even preached to Samaritan, and he challenged the disciples to go preach to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he deliberately uses an outsider and a hated one of that for the hero of his story to indicate that being a neighbor is not a matter of nationality or race, and he's doing so to expose the hypocrisy of this scholar and theologian. When I was in seminary, first time was a better, the first time was not a good experience. The second time was a better experience. The first time it was not a good, good experience because of me. It was a spiritually dry time in my life. And Southern Seminary was not to blame. It was me. It was my heart. And I was reading books and preaching and learning theology and philosophy. And I was arrogant. I was prideful. I had a lot of answers, but I did not fall more in love with Jesus. And you can know this book. You can know this book and you can have answers, but you can be like the church at Ephesus that you've lost your first love and there not be a, a vitality to your walk with Jesus. This was a scholar, a theologian, someone who everybody would go to for the questions, but by every indication this was not a man who had been changed by Jesus. He wanted to test Jesus. And he does not like the answer that Jesus gives. So you have a priest, you have a Levite, and then you have a Samaritan. The Samaritan puts this individual on his own beast, indicating that this man was not able to physically walk. He had been beaten up so badly, left for dead, and would have died. He puts him on his own donkey. He walks while this person takes his right. He takes care of his wounds with oil and wine. He takes him into an inn and gives the innkeeper two denarii, two days wages. Not a lot of money, but it was still two days wages. And tells the innkeeper, we see this from other parallel accounts, that if, if, if there's any more money that you need, if you're out of pocket in any capacity, let me know. I'm going to come back and I will appropriately pay you what you have spent on this person that I don't know. Look at verse 36. Jesus says to the scholar, the theologian, the lawyer, which of these three, the priest, Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy, he cannot even bring himself to actually articulate the word Samaritan. He's so offended by Jesus' words. I think it's a bit funny that Jesus, throughout this whole parable, is trying to teach 
the lawyer what it means to be a neighbor. He gives him an example, and he doesn't want to even utter the word Samaritan. You see the hardness and the stubbornness of his heart. So let me just stop for a moment. These are questions that I ask myself regularly. Three questions that are on the screen there. What have you heard so far as we've read through part of this passage? What have you heard from the sermon? What have you heard? Has the Spirit of God brought anything to your heart? What have you heard? Second question is, what do you believe, what do you need to believe and do? What do you need to believe and do? Third question is, who's going to help you do it? Here's the point of, of when you open the Bible to read it devotionally, when you're in a group, maybe you came from a group, or maybe you're in a home group, maybe you're in another group, and, and you open the Bible, and you read the Bible, you talk about the Bible, discuss the Bible, read the Bible, or when you hear a sermon, the point of a devotion, the point of a, a Bible study, the point of a sermon is not to say, boy, that was really good. I like that. It was short, shorter. I like this illustration. Boy, I love the way that she brought that out in discussion as a good question. The point of reading the Bible, the point of a Bible study, the point of a sermon is that the Spirit of God would move our heart, that we'd be moved to love Jesus more and that our lives would show. So there, there would be movement because God doesn't want us to stay still. He wants us to move. Complacency is not God's desire, God's will for you. He wants us to move. So what did you hear what do you need to believe and do and who's going to help you do it? There's some humility, some transparency, some vulnerability involved to say, hey, I know there's some things that I need to do. This is what I need to believe. And I'm going to ask you to help me because we do this Christian life together. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We're not on an island. We do this together. And certainly as we talk about sharing hope with our neighbors, we need to do this together. Well, to close this morning, both men, priest and Levite, were guilty of the sin of omission. They failed to save a man's life. They passed by, pretending maybe not to notice. And the wickedness and the cruelty of their act is heightened by the fact that they are coming from where? They're coming from Jerusalem. Most commentators think and believe that they were coming from worship. They had just gotten done sacrificing helping facilitate worship of God. They helped with sacrifices. And as they came from Jerusalem and they're down this long, windy descent to Jericho, they see a man beaten, bloody, left for dead. And what do they do? They see him and they decide to go the other way. There's a verse in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 to 23, where it says this, and you probably know it. Finish it with me if you know it. To obey is better than, to obey is better than sacrifice. We can raise our hands. We can give our money. We can serve. We can listen to the word. We can sing. We can play. And we can give all the sacrifice. And it's right and appropriate. Romans 12 says that our life is a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that dies. We die to ourselves. We live unto Jesus. So our lives are meant to be a sacrifice. But to obey is better than sacrifice. Because we can do all this stuff for Jesus, and failed to really love him. Christian brother, sister, be wary of that. You can check the boxes and be engaged and do, 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 but not have a love and an intimacy for Jesus. The priest and the Levite who helped in the church building, 
who answered your questions, who facilitated worship, by all accounts had not been changed by Jesus, yet this Samaritan had been. The real question is not what ailment or issue is going on right before me that qualifies me to be a neighbor, but simply a person becomes a neighbor when I treat them in a neighborly way and I interact with them. So yes, it means your physical neighbor. You're not off the hook. It means them and them and them, but it also means anybody that you come in contact with and interact with. So what are we to do? We're to be busy serving and loving and being a neighbor to those around us. Maybe you've ignored some needs. Maybe you've had, you've had an encounter where you knew you were called to share hope and to love your neighbor but you've not done so. And just so you know that I'm not up on some ivory tower looking down, even though this platform is high, you're higher than me. This past week, I had four opportunities to share hope. I was one for four. The other three, I was just tired. I was exhausted. It has been a really busy week the last four weeks, and I was just tired. And the Spirit of God said, hey, and and I didn't have to pray. Jesus, do you want me to share hope with Cam, Wayne, and Andre? Not answering that question, already told you, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John chapter 20, Acts chapter 4. You don't have to pray whether or not uh, you're going to share hope. Already answered it. Don't have to pray that prayer. All right. Well, I didn't. So I miss opportunities. I intentionally go the other way at times because this is an inconvenience. So I, I'm, I struggle with this. I need prayer. I need encouragement. I need courage. But all of us can probably identify with instances in our life where we have not shared hope. Well, who does this parable point us to? Obviously, the parable of the story points us to Jesus The lawyer wanted to place some kind of limitation on what it would mean to love your neighbor. But Jesus refuses to put limitations on what it means to be a neighbor and makes it clear that loving our neighbor is going to entail sacrifice and inconvenience, including our enemies, as I preached several weeks ago. And by doing this, I believe, by implication, Jesus is showing us that we cannot keep this law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go and do this present tense. Continually do this. Continually avail yourself to love God with the totality of your life, every ounce of your life, every moment of your day, to love God and to love your neighbor with the same constant intensity and passion that we love and take care of ourselves. We're to exemplify that to others. No one has done that. How can I be saved? You can't be saved by the law. The law is powerless to make you saved. All it does, it exposes our deficiency. It exposes our sin. But Jesus, but Jesus is the one who always practiced what he preached. He's not the good Samaritan. His mercy goes further than merely nursing a badly beaten man back to health. When Jesus comes to our aid, we were not merely dying, but we were spiritually dead in our sins. Jesus does not just go on the other side of the road to help this person. He leaves the glories of heaven to come to earth to give us his life. 
And what are we to do? Verse 37. You go and do likewise. Because when you were beaten and bloodied and left for dead and had no hope, Jesus put hope in your heart through his death, life, burial, resurrection. And what are we to do? We're to share hope. And here's the last thing I'll say. The church is comprised of people who have been redeemed and rescued by God's grace through the good news of Jesus. And yet the longer we are believers, often, what is the case, we get further away from the people that Jesus has saved us to actually go towards to. We're to move towards people who are lost. If you don't know the names of people around you, you should know the names of people around you. If you don't know any details of their life, you should know details of their life. Jesus didn't say, I want to share hope with you, but he got in our lives. And there's grace and there's mercy every moment of every day because me, and along with many people in this room, we at times believe this, but we don't live it out. And there's grace and there's mercy and there's courage and there's steadfastness every day of every week, of every month, of every year to actually do what he's called us to do. So let me encourage you to be faithful, to share hope with your neighbors.